Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Jerry the Monk Hutch pleads not guilty on day one of the Regency Hotel murder trial. We get the latest on today's proceedings. Claire Brock is in Kildare, where she hears from one of the many restaurant owners doing all they can to remain open for service in an era of spiralling costs. The rise of the vape, cited as a means of helping to reduce smoking, but is it causing more harm than good? And it's one small step for Ireland, as our first ever homegrown satellite is to take off next year. Do join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. First tonight, Jerry Hutch has gone on trial for the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel in Dublin more than six years ago. The man known as The Monk has pleaded not guilty. Our court reporter Deborah Naylor was in court today and I began by asking her about the security operation around the trial. Yeah, it's certainly another dramatic day of evidence in court and another day where you had very tight security uh, both inside and outside the criminal courts of justice and um, there were you know a number of armed officers outside the courts inside the courts you had a big police presence also jury uh, the monk Hutch, as he's known he arrived by guard escort this morning but when he was led into the dock with his two co-accused i suppose the trial got underway quite quickly as as any other trial would and he was arraigned and he was asked today you know when charged with the murder of david byrne at the Agency Hotel in uh, February 2016. How is he pleading? And he, he replied, not guilty. He was quite expressionist, it must be said, for the rest of the proceedings throughout the day, but he, he was certainly quite affirmative uh, when arraigned today. And the prosecution counsel, Sean Galan, he quite quickly got into the facts of this case. It is, of course, before the non-jury court, so it's not before a jury. So he facts that are at this point quite well rehearsed, but he said that this was a performative, targeted, militaristic elements of this attack, which was carried out in broad daylight in the middle of the city. And he outlined how the gunmen entered the Regency Hotel, um, how David Byrne was shot six times and, you know, how he lost his life. And... Uh, certain individuals he said that they were looking for on that day and that David Byrne was not the intended target of this. Um, but then what he did lead into quite soon after that was the Garda investigations and that is where the new significant details emerged today. And what did the court hear today, Deborah, about Jerry Hutch's alleged role in the murder of David Byrne? Well, we heard first of all that um, before the day before the shooting that Jared Hutch, uh, that he was 
He said, Sean Glan said today he would present evidence that key cards were handed over to Jerry Hutch. And he said that this was a very important step in context of the following day. He said it would be alleged those key cards were handed over by Jonathan Dowdall, who we know alongside his father was jailed yesterday for facilitating the murder of David Byrne at the Regency. He also said that after um, the murder, in the weeks after, that Jerry, uh, Jerry Hutch met Jonathan Dowdall at uh, a park in Whitehall in Dublin. And he said in that conversation, he just it would be alleged during the course of the trial that Jerry Hutch was described as being uh, edgy and worked up and that he said that they had carried out the murder and that he had been one of the team that shot David Byrne at the Regency. And he also said during that conversation that he asked Jonathan Dowdall to um, meet with Republican contacts that he had due to Jerry Hutch's fear, we heard, um, about, the, uh, about the, the escalation in this feud. But of course, at this stage, uh, this this is what the prosecution presented today. This will have to be proven throughout the course of this trial. Today was, as it were, just a roadmap of where this case will go. But we also heard uh, that on the 7th of March, and this is a recorded conversation, the prosecution said that um, in that conversation that they discussed events surrounding the Regency Hotel, that is Jonathan Dowdall and Jerry Hutch, and that uh, this evidence would be presented throughout the course of this trial. And that trial will, of course, continue tomorrow. Uh, Deborah Naylor, thanks as always. Now, more and more businesses in the hospitality industry are being forced to reduce their hours, whittle down their menus, or even completely shut up shop due to the unsustainable cost, they say, of keeping their doors open to customers. Tonight, Claire Brock spoke to a restaurant owner in Kildare who is doing all he can to keep the lights on. Well, Kira, I'm here in Hearts in Kildare, and this gastropub perhaps reflecting the real pressure on the hospitality sector at the moment. Um, I'm with owner Paul Lenehan, and Paul's telling me now how you've gone from opening, I suppose, on six nights a week to five nights a week. You've decided to stay shut on a Tuesday as well. So would you say the honeymoon phase post-COVID is well and truly over? <laughs> Unfortunately, it is, absolutely, yeah. We've uh, closed, uh, we've two gastropubs, both of them now closed on a Monday and a Tuesday. And for the foreseeable future, they will be remaining closed. Um, the, the, the big issues being uh, energy, power and also staff. Yeah, I mean, as you say, energy being and the cost of living crisis being a big one um, for businesses like yours this year. Tell us about the impact of those rises that we're seeing three, fourfold in some cases. Yeah, I mean, our electricity in both places has gone through the roof. Um, I suppose, you know, in some cases, in some people's contracts, you're locked in earlier in the year and you're, as the year goes by, you're moving into a new contract. So we're locked into prices that we locked in last February and they were pretty high back then. And I'm, I know what there are at the moment. Moment. So I'd be very, very, very optimistic, or very scared of where this is going to go. This is, um, you know, doubled at the moment. Maybe 120% uh, is what our power is at, and our gas is nearly hitting three times what it was this time last year. Okay, and when we think about energy use in a restaurant, there's all the lights around here, mm. but the big energy user is in the kitchen. It's kitchen, yeah, absolutely. Your extraction. Uh, for your for your electricity, your extraction, all your walk-in your walk-in ovens, and a lot of people have electric ovens, electric hobs, and then gas, your fryers. You know, the, okay. the, the gas alone is just going through the roof. The, the pub is heated on uh, gas at the same time. So between that and the actual working of the everything in the kitchen, it's just killing us at the moment. The gas is huge. Let's take a walk through and have a look. Yeah, absolutely. Come on through. So here we are in the kitchen. Um, I can imagine it here, not tonight because you're closed, but a busy night, you'd have five chefs. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is where you'd have five chefs pretty much uh, five nights of the week. Maybe, maybe four on a Wednesday and Thursday, but definitely five throughout the weekend. And you can see straight away that, I mean, everything here takes either power and gas. Uh, you've got a big uh, gas combi oven. You've got an eight ring gas uh, uh, hob here. You've got fryers. Mm. You know, we have everything in the kitchen. That, that, a lot of that's running on gas. And everything here then is on, uh, other than that, it's electric. So you've got your, uh, all your fridges. You've got your blast chillers behind me here. Your walk-in fridges. Your extraction fan, obviously, probably one of the biggest things that's on all the time. And that these are on from 10 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. There's just no let off. You can't turn them off, can't turn them down. And is there any way you can cut back on that when you're looking at making energy savings? Uh, there's not really, no. I mean, you know, there's certain times of the day you might be able to down it, turn down the gas, a small bit, but generally, the no chefs hate, and it's very difficult to work in a kitchen where every time they go on, they're turning back on hobs. And just as much as we'd like them to be turned off, they're not, they're on. We can't be watching our own hobs and stoves all of the time. So they're always up and they're always on. And it's just a case, it's just a working fact. You're talking about gas here, you're, yeah. you're a big user of gas now yeah. under the government scheme to help businesses like yours they are offering 40% back on the yeah. increase you're facing in your bills up to up to 10,000 euro yeah. you have to choose between gas and electricity there yeah I mean again something I looked into a bit more today and that's right it's only we can only pick either gas or electricity so in our businesses we're predominantly you know obviously there's a huge amount of electric which is a set but the gas consumption now in kitchens for us is huge and that we can already see that's gone up fourfold my electric is up as i said before 120 percent but the gas is just huge so we're looking at trying to either factor in how will we make that work next year because i know my rate is going to be looked at again in january so yeah i don't know what to do okay there's also the cost of raw ingredients yeah. is that feeding into i suppose how you devise menus yeah of course and what you charge customers yeah of course i mean look we've always been looking at since, since the vat rate went up um or, and i've talked about going back up to 13 percent we've always been factoring the price of what our, our menus our raw materials have gone up hugely in the last six to nine months again we're always adding a bit taking a bit trying to change your dish uh, looking at your seasonality, your dishes, again, things that we were always doing anyway. But now you've got that added cost, those, all those little bit added on. Uh, and our menus were already getting expensive. You know, we don't want to be putting up our prices that makes it, make it our, you know, that it's an unfair advantage anybody coming out and that it makes it their evening even more expensive. But there's very little we can do going forward unless the government step in and give us a far, far better hand in, in trying to sort out our, our light and heat and our, our, our energy bills because energy, unfortunately, is where it's going to kill us. So what's off the menu? What's off the menu? Dishes yeah. are off the menu. Yeah. We've actually taken fillet steak off the menu, for example. Uh, we don't have it on the menu anymore. Uh, as much as customers are crying for it, and you will have some that will pay for it, all in all, it's too expensive for us to put on the menu. So you're, taking, you're trying to also take out anything that maybe had an overmount of dairy. In dairy in our desserts, mm -hmm. like we always use a lot of dairy, but dairy is what makes Irish food so good. And it's unfortunate that we have to strip it back uh, and not use as much of it. So you're looking at all those real key ingredients, you know, your raw meats, your chicken, simple things have all doubled and tripled in price. You know, they're only, I mean, you might, it might be the one element on the dish, but when you add all the different elements up, the prices are going out of control. Um, when we talk about survival of this sector, especially over the coming months, are going to be difficult. We don't know where energy prices are going. Um, oh. what, what's, your, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's your big fear? Survival. Survival. I mean, you know, we're all trying to continuously each day reinvent our business to kind of keep ourselves competitive. But that word is gone. 
and it's so, so difficult. It's so sad to see so many businesses already closing, closing on a daily basis at the moment because they can't open because of the restrictions or because of the, they're not, their inability to pay just their, their, their suppliers and pay their light and heat. So my fear is that this is going to continue. They're talking about it as at one a day. This is just going to get worse and worse and worse. And I don't know what the answer is, but something needs to be done and needs to be done quick because our, our, our sector is in serious trouble. Okay, that's great. Paul, thanks for bringing us into your kitchen, bringing us into your restaurant tonight. Um, that's it. It's back to you in studio, Kira. Well, joining me in studio to discuss, owner of Hugo's Restaurant on Marion Row in Dublin City, Gina Murphy, Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail, Damien English, the co-leader of the Social Democrats, Catherine Murphy, and business journalist, Mark Paul. You're all very welcome to the programme. Gina, look, I know a number of the pressures there that Paul um, Lenehan spoke about would be familiar to you. I'm just wondering, how many of those costs do you now have to just pass on to the customer? Well, I think after the last two years, we've we've all in our industry felt like we've been in in the boxing ring with Tyson for, you know, and we've taken all the punches. Um, unfortunately, at this stage, we have to pass every one of those costs on. None of us have any cushioning left or any padding left. There's um, no reserves. There's no reserves. I mean, everybody knows that we've been helped through the pandemic with supports from the government. If we didn't have those supports, we wouldn't still be here, and we're very grateful for them. But now we're in a different crisis, and. While we're not looking for handouts, we are looking to be protected because we're a very um, integral part of society. We're an integral part of every community. One in every 10 people in this country is employed in tourism and hospitality. So as restaurants, we are the front line, but there are so many businesses behind us that depend on us doing well. So if we don't protect the front line, it's going to trickle down right across the board. Um, but everything that Paul said there in his interview, Every single restaurateur could give you that verbatim. There's none of us who aren't experiencing the exact same issues. And, and having same... to make tweaks and having to make changes to, to your menus, to your opening hours. Yes. I mean, I look at myself. I mean, my last utility bill went from 4,000 to 12,000 in one jump. I mean, how do you cover that? We, we operate on the tightest of margins as it is. So, I mean... The news that the um, tax warehouse scheme has been extended out is just a, it, it's a huge weight of our shoulders because, quite honestly, we're going to be using the money that we've put aside for that to pay the utility bills to get us through the winter. What That's... about staffing, Gina? Because we're hearing an awful lot of um, anecdotal evidence of restaurants and bars and hotels really struggling to mm -hmm. attract cat staff and to keep the staff mm -hmm. that they have. What are you doing to keep yours? Well, um, I've managed to regroup a kitchen team. I, I, I lost all my team. I mean, I had 26 full-time permanent employees. I lost 21 and then another subsequent three after we reopened. Um, the hit was too big for everybody. The hit to their income was too big. Um, the, the wage subsidy scheme, while it was wonderful, didn't cover the real cost of living that these people had built their lives around. So what are you having to offer now that you didn't offer before in order to attract staff? Um, there's nothing that, that's hugely different, but the lack of people, of skilled, trained people in the industry who have stayed has pushed up the, the prices of, you know, job positions. That's not a bad thing. There's, not, there's no complaints there. But what it has done is it's put the labour cost um, slightly out of kilter. That's fine. We, we can work around that. The big issue is our very skilled people have left the industry. So our managers, our sommeliers, our maitre d's, all people that were earning very good money could not 
you know, stay and keep their families going on the wage subsidy scheme because they were used to making two, three, four times that amount of money. OK, but I'm wondering, Mark Paul, why can't the industry entice those people back? Um, well, look, look, there's always been an argument around whether or not the working conditions in the industry are, um, uh, you know, equal to other industries. There, there's always been this perception, particularly in kitchens and particularly among chefs, that, you know, it's a high-pressure industry with low pay. The industry has been doing what it can, what it can for the last... Um, um, you know, year or so, we're working with Fulcher Ireland to try and improve uh, working conditions, and particularly in the hotel sector as well. Um, but it's always going to be difficult um, to attract uh, uh, workers back into an industry when you're being hit with this financial pincer movement where all your costs are going up, your revenues are going down because people have less money to spend in restaurants. So it's very, very hard for restaurants to pay the sort of wage rates that they need um, to attract workers in. They're, they're competing with... The, the, the restaurant sector lost an awful lot of people to the retail sector during the pandemic because the retail sector stayed open right away through the lockdowns. Um, and, and, and restaurant workers who got sick of being in work, out of work, in work, out of work, they all went to the retail sector for stability. And it's really, really difficult now to entice them back to work on social errors and to work at times for pay that, you know, there's higher pay possibly in some other industries. Some people, it's a vocation um, and working in the restaurant sector and you'll always get those people there. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's really, really difficult on the staffing front for restaurants at the moment. And yet, you know, I went online today and saw some um, restaurants that were advertising for staff, Catherine Murphy, and I was surprised by what they were offering. You know, there was health packages, pension packages, what I would have thought were wages that you would never have dreamt you could receive in the industry two or three years ago, and yet still problems. So what's the answer? Well, um, you know, obviously, there's, there's a really serious problem at the moment, and let's acknowledge that. Um, and uh, the energy... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm getting the emails from people in my own constituency where they're, you know, talking about, you know, three and four times the amount that they were paying. Um, uh, and, and, you know, really worried about and, and the, the word there was survival, really worried about the survival. And I think we should be all worried about that because it's, um, you know, this is not just the hospitality sector, this is your tourism industry, this is, you know, uh, the, so you know the things like commercial, commercial rates. And all. Look, there has to be, there has to be a fair pay to attract people to, to work in, uh, in the industry. And but do you there think does, there is fair pay but at there, the moment? In, in, certainly in some, in some uh, restaurants and hotels there is, in some others there isn't. And there has been a bad experience with, uh, with, some, um, with some hotels. And Mark is right, people went for the nine to five job, they went for, uh, they went, and, and they got used to that then. So it's very difficult to get people back. And th like there's been, you know, this is the second crisis that, that and, and prolonged crisis that people are going to have to deal with. But we, all, we already have several crises. The last thing we want is another one where we would end up with, a, a, you know, a, a job loss crisis. But is there and, a problem here, Damien? I mean, the businesses are talking about survival, but is it a day of reckoning for some of these businesses? Is it a moment to just accept that perhaps your business model is no longer sustainable? Uh, no, I don't agree that, Kira. Two issues, and this, Jean has touched on this and so did Paul. If, if the government can design these supports right, we can help these businesses survive through a difficult time. We did that by working together very well during COVID. We used taxpayers' money in a very clever way to support businesses, to support jobs. And we're doing the same again with this budget. The, biggest, the big effort here was the energy support scheme, which will be back to, to, to September and brings it through to February. And Paul and Gina, I always would say, it's still not enough. We recognise that it doesn't deal with the full bill. It's about 40% of the increase. Within the EU rules and within the budget we have, 
that's the scheme that we're, that we're, we're working with now. It'll be a big support, but we are working with the sector again. We'll sit down with the hospitality sector this week again to see other areas we can support in. And again, this brings us through to January, February. The EU framework will change, it has changed, and, and, and other, other countries are bringing through schemes as well. We monitor all the schemes and we push the limits as far as we can to support these businesses. But just, Kira, on the second thing, on the second thing though, Kira, and to be honest, to be fair to every sector, every sector that I engage with, uh, or the tolerance to engage with from, a, from an employment point of view, are short of staff. It's right across the country, it's in every sector, and we're dealing with that. It, it, mean, it means a number of interventions specific to each industry. It means working with the state through our ETBs, through our LEOs, uh, through our skill net programs right. to train up staff. There's been a number of new apprenticeships and so on. So we're, we're making progress in the right space there, but every sector, because we have two and a half million people at work, which is a really, really positive for the country, but it's leaving many businesses under pressure to okay. get staff Let's at, talk and about at the right price too. So we have a lot of work to do here, but I think businesses can survive, we recognise that they will need support, so that's right. what we're here for. Mark Paul, can all businesses survive? Should the government be doing everything they can, as Damien said, to stop these businesses, particularly in the restaurant sector and the hospitality sector, going to the wall? Well, look, they spend so much, the government spent so much money throughout the pandemic supporting businesses. It doesn't want to just flush all that down the toilet by, by, by letting those businesses go bust now. And you can see the logic behind that. But, uh, you know, you mentioned a day of reckoning before. There is this sense of a day of reckoning being delayed for the industry because the damage that was done to the industry by the pandemic, and that's been done by... Um, and by the energy crisis and, and, and there would normally be attrition of restaurants. You, you always get restaurants going bust in a good year or in a bad year. We don't know what restaurants are going to go bust and because a, a lot of reps, restaurants um, that possibly might have gone bust anyway have Do been Do you think kept... there's an over-reliance on the state supports? Um, uh, I think I, 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 I think I think eventually the government is going to have to remove them, like ripping off a plaster. It's going to have to remove the supports at some stage, and when that happens, you will see a lot going bust. Okay, well, just right. make a point, Kira. I mean, in, in relation to COVID, we stepped in with the support to get us through that. What's happening now is completely different. It's another emergency coming at the country in the form of energy because of a war. So supports are designed to get through that. Most of these businesses that we're talking about here today are sustainable only for these high energy costs. So well, we will design you supports with that, through that. Gina, but mm -hmm. is there an argument that there are too many? Restaurants in not this at country. all. Not at all. Listen, we're, we're a nation of welcomes. We welcome people. We're hospitable. We are fabulous producers of food. I mean, look anywhere around the country, and and you see wonderful farms and family-run businesses. Most businesses in this country, um, in the hospitality, over ninety percent of them employ less than ten people. A lot of these are small producers. If we don't protect these businesses, and we're not looking for support upon support upon support, no. we're looking for a comprehension of our industry, like just a, an understanding of how we operate. We're well able to stand on our own two feet, but we can't, we can't withstand pressures like a, a utility bill jumping from 4,000 to 12,000 in one bill. But Nobody as the minister can said, take there, that there hit. were efforts made in the budget to help businesses, mm -hmm. particularly in this the, industry, one to of deal the, with those bills. One of the crucial things that has to be addressed is the VAT cannot go back up to 9%. We've been operating and run our business models on a 9% VAT rate since 2011, bar the one year All right. in between. And like, we've, we've English started our businesses Respond like that. Respond to that issue of the, of the VAT, given yeah. that these businesses are struggling. But as you said, and Mark Paul said, Every business, or many businesses in this country, are struggling and would probably wish for a VAT rate of that. Is yeah. it fair that one industry gets it over the other? Yeah, and again, in the, in the budget just gone, because I mean, the VAT, the VAT rate is, is, is 9% in place till the spring, because we know it's very, very, very important to the sector, absolutely. In the budget just gone, the big ask of us, from anybody in, in business of all sectors, was the energy bill. So every euro we had to spare to fund business supports was put into the energy okay, support scheme, the VAT which would kick in. The VAT question it, it remains there. I mean, it's, it's there in place until the spring, and every minister said, 
Do you think it'll be reviewed? To be honest, to that's not. I mean, we keep all these supports on the review, and let's be honest with you. And again, with, like COVID, we had to intervene a number of occasions. We sat here with Gina as well a number of times during COVID, designing new schemes to get us through different stages. We there is money in, in the kitty next year. It kept aside that if we need to support businesses again, we, we can do that. There's about two point seven billion set aside in the budget, separate to the national reserve that's in place to, to, to get us through the, the difficulties with Ukraine uh, throughout the year. So we can if we need to find other ways. But, but for now, we've had to use the energy support scheme. It will be a great benefit to businesses, up to €10,000 per month. For a lot of businesses, will, they will need that. Yeah. Do you think it is sustainable, Catherine, to continue funding businesses like this with those COVID-style schemes? Look, I mean, we're talking 2019 to 2022, 20, three, almost four years yeah. of supports. Uh, the thing about it is that it costs a lot of money to create a job. And we do need to make sure that we don't end up with a lot of people unemployed. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Because then you have another you have another range of issues if, if, if that happens. And it's not just the hospitality sector. There's many sectors that are going to be impacted by this. Like something like, uh, like what we need to be doing is supporting businesses that are viable but are vulnerable because of the, uh, of the energy uh, crisis. Now, I've got to say, I think part of the reason why the VAT rate went back up um, uh, was because there was a feeling that in the, uh, you know, in Post some of the hotels, there was a, a feeling that there was some gout in, the, in, in, in terms of hotel rooms and that. And I, I think it did irritate, uh, you know, irritate a lot of people where there's supports there and then that, that was, there was a feeling. The other, there is another aspect in, in relation to making sure that if there are supports there that you don't give them to, um, you don't give them where, you don't give them to companies that are then going to pay big dividends. That kind of thing absolutely drives people nuts. Uh, this is about supporting yeah. businesses to keep them uh, to, to, to keep them afloat if you like right. during the, the through, you know do you, for this crisis do you think Gina the offering is going to change from restaurants absolutely. in terms of opening hours in terms of customer expectations absolutely I mean just to refer what Catherine was saying there I mean and, and what um, the others were saying one of the big things to remember is that food is a very price sensitive mm. um, commodity for customers. And so we are really, really conscious of where we have our pricing. We can't gouge on food. You can't. Nobody's right. going to come in and pay 45 euros for a breast of chicken. We have to be realistic. 
Yes, you are going to see changes on menus. You are going to see tapering of menus. You're going to see right. more consolidated menus and consolidated opening hours. Uh, just very briefly, Mark Paul, I'm conscious we're having this conversation in the middle of a cost of living crisis and there'll be a lot of people watching this evening thinking, I can barely put a meal on my table, never mind going out to a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, possibly the biggest challenge facing restaurants um, um, over the next six months or so isn't energy costs, isn't staffing costs. It's the fact that people are just going to have less mm -hmm. money in their pockets mm -hmm. to spend. I mean, if you've got 8% inflation, you've got 8% less of your salary each year to spend on restaurants. So it's, as I said, it's like and a it's one of the things to go. It, it, it is, and it's the first thing, it's the first thing that people cut is their night out or Saturday night out when things uh, get bad. Uh, sorry, before we go, Michael, sorry, Damien, I just want yeah, to get one right. more question and uh, apologies cut across you, but I want to ask you before we mm. move on about the centric, central bank rules on mortgage uh, lending. We understand they're going to change tomorrow that a person will be able to borrow four times their salary instead of three and a half times uh, their salary. Your reaction to that? So I think that will assist people who want to buy homes. Um, we have to recognise that we are now building very well-regulated um, houses. They're very close to, to A1-rated houses. They are more expensive to build, more expensive to, to purchase. And I think a, a change in the rules would be of assistance. Again, that central bank, central bank decision is independent of government. We recognise that. But there's been a lot of a lot of requests for this to happen over the last number of years. So I think it's a positive. But again, we, we also have to recognise that it's more houses we need. And every effort we do has to be about the supply of housing. That's what it will continue to be. All right. We're going to have to leave that topic there for now. My thanks to Gina. The rest of the panel will be staying with us. And after the break, vaping on the rise at an alarming rate amongst our young people. Is it about time we regulate? You're very welcome back. Smoking amongst children was steadily decreasing for 20 years in this country, but it's on the rise again. Is the vape to blame? Well, with an explosion in its use over recent years, many say it's time that they are hit with some regulation. Minister Damien English, Catherine Murphy and Mark Paul are all still with me. And joining our panel to discuss the issue is the Director General of the Tobacco-Free Research Institute in Ireland, Professor Luke Clancy. Professor, you're very welcome to the programme is vaping risk-free? Certainly not risk-free. Um, the trouble is it's often compared to smoking, which is obviously nothing is as bad as smoking that we do, because that kills half of the people who use cigarettes, will die from them. But the worry we have is complex. It's more difficult because uh, some people find e-cigarettes useful for stopping smoking, and that's the message that went out. Uh, however, most adults who use them use them as well as cigarettes, and we're not sure that that's any benefit. But what my, do they contain? What is in a vape? The reason people would use them is for nicotine. They don't all contain nicotine, but that's the main reason, and that's the main objection to them from my point of view, because uh, when children use them, and we found that two-thirds of the children who use them, and they can start very young, had never smoked a cigarette when they started these. So there was no question of them taking up vaping to, to stop smoking. Two-thirds had not used a cigarette. Because but primarily it was seen initially, I suppose, when it came on the market as a cessation device to get people off the cigarettes. And many people found it beneficial for that reason. They did find it beneficial, but that's the way it was marketed. But uh, that wasn't the hope, because if it was, why wasn't it kept medical? Why isn't it registered? Why isn't it prescribed? So clearly, it was a consumer product that was there to make money. 
it so happens that some people use them to give up. But when children, when you talk about children, there is no rationale for them using them, except they get addicted to them. And again, nicotine addiction isn't the worst addiction in the world. Uh, cigarettes are because of all the bad things that are in them. But nicotine can affect the brain, and particularly young people. When their brain is developing, it can be maldeveloped with uh, problems that arise thereafter during development. But mostly, they are addicted. And we have shown that if you use e-cigarettes as a child, you're twice as likely to use cigarettes. So when they say, oh, e-cigarettes are great, they're going to stop people smoking, as you said in your opener, we have found and published from the Tobacco Free Research Institute that smoking is rising in children again. Now, and you feel there's a correlation, do you? We do, very much so. And we've showed that you're twice as likely to take up cigarette smoking if you use vapes. And that's obvious, and it's the nicotine addiction. But then, if that wasn't enough, they make them flavoured. So they have raspberry and strawberry and melon, and very nice things that you might like to consume. But if you consume them, they're going into your tummy and they're being digested. But when you inhale them, we don't know what they're going to do. But they're clearly there to attract children. Um, we talked about an explosion in their use amongst young people. Do we have any stats to back that up? Yes, we have plenty. Uh, we know, for instance, that now, the last time we did it, 18% of children were using them regularly. And that had been 10% four years earlier. And half of the children, nearly half, 40-something percent, have tried e-cigarettes. And when you say children, what age are you referring to, Professor? The age that I'm quoting you is 16, but we look at them from younger than that. And, but mostly they'll start around 14 or 15. But at 16, we have 18% of them, which is much higher than cigarettes at the moment. Uh, Mark Paul, talk to me about the industry behind vaping. It's a big industry. It's big, big business. Um, the, the, the global market at the moment for vaping products is about 20 billion euros. But by the end of 2030, it's a forecast to be about 160 billion euros. So it's grown at 30% a year. Um, the industry really in Ireland is split in two. You've got... On the one hand, um, you know, vaping retailers, generally small businesses. You, know, you can buy them in any garage for corporate or specialist retailers. But the big business end of the vaping industry are, are the manufacturers. Every big tobacco company has uh, a vaping brand. Um, some, some of the big specialist vaping companies like Juul, I mean, it withdrew from the Irish market two years ago. Um, but, but tougher regulation is coming for this industry. And the, the Oireachtas Joint Committee on Health issued a list of recommendations. There's legislation working its way through. That committee. It just finished committee stage during the summer. And they've proposed a number of things. They've proposed... Um, um, it, the legislation already says that it's going to ban the sale to under-18s. Um, but they've proposed banning the sale of you know, fancy, bright packaging um, and banning flavours like, I mean, who needs strawberry milkshake or, or, uh, or cola-flavoured um, uh, uh, vape liquids? And, you know, and that, that, that clearly would attract children. And you know that tougher regulation is coming when you see an industry on the move and the vaping industry is on the move. All you need to do is just take one quick look at the lobbying register down in the Standards and Public Office Commission. And it's littered with uh, filings for the vaping industry. And then the two main vaping lobbying, one for the retailers, one for the manufacturers, they're in and out of, of it's like Lanigan's Ball. I mean, they're in and out of government buildings all the time um, and lobbying a legislation. And, and that's when you know tougher regulation is coming, when, when you see an industry worried like that. Uh, but Catherine... It's taken a while, hasn't it, to get to this point? It has, yeah. To get to this legislation. Have we been slow to respond here? 
Possibly, but the, the main thing is that we do get this legislation and we get and we get and we get it we get it right. Um, and I, I think some of the points that have been made are ones that you're expecting to see in the uh, in in the in the legislation, including like certainly no under 18s licensing uh, and the flavours that are particularly aimed at children. I mean, there, we're only going to be in 10 years trying, time trying to redouble down on the kind of efforts that have been made so far, fairly punitive efforts to try and encourage people to give up cigarettes. We're certainly not taking them up in the first place is, is the, the most important thing we can do. And the, the points that have been made by uh, Professor Clancy are really important from the point of view of, of it being a gateway into, uh, in, into the use of, of, of cigarettes. Uh, I just want to read a statement uh, that we received from the Irish Vape Vendors Association this evening. We did invite them onto the programme, but nobody was available. But they've said vape products are made for adults who no longer wish to smoke. Uh, we support the introduction of a ban on sales of vaping products to under-18s in Ireland. We continue to call the government to urgently bring in this law. It is highly regulated uh, for safety and quality. Uh, vaping is a recommended quit aid by the NHS in the UK, they say, and we believe that a similar approach here is a key step in a smoke-free Ireland. Um, Damien English, as it stands in this country, though, a child can walk into any vape shop, can't they, and pick up one of these products? Which is not good enough. I mean, I mean the, the legislation has to come in, and that's why it's scheduled to be published before Christmas. A lot of work has been done on it um, over the last two years in, in the Houses of Doctors Committee recommendations. I totally agree, with Professor Luke, and the stats is there. It's not. It can't come quick enough. So there's an urgency behind this. Any addiction is not good for any of us. But certainly, if, if it's if an addiction to, to vaping is causing young people then to take up. Uh, cigarettes, but also if, if it's pushing this, the trend backwards, we've made great progress over the last 20 years. With yeah, we, we were a pioneer at one point in this well, country, yeah, when, we, where'd but, we when again, it came to the smoking it's, ban? It's like all progress, we can't take it for granted. I think we have to put a major effort into this. Legislation is one thing, that'll deal with the sale of it, it'll deal with the advertising, it'll deal with vending machines, but I think a key focus of any campaign is around education and learning just how serious these are. And if there's an addiction issue or a gateway issue, that needs to be dealt with and well publicised because I think Professor Lucas said the conversation around vaping has been very different for the last 10 or 15 years compared to a conversation around smoking. And not everyone knows the links or has all the information. I wouldn't either, but listen to Professor and his team. They have a lot of good research here, which we need to analyse. But I think it's important the legislation sets the tone and that will happen in the next couple of months. What about the cost, I suppose, in comparison to cigarettes? Mm. I mean, you can buy a vape, I understand, for about €7. Euro. I think mm. it's... 500 or 600 puffs, you're paying, is it around 16 euro now for a packet of mm -hmm. cigarettes? I don't think the two products are taxed the same. Mm -hmm. Are uh, they? Is, is that a concern of yours? Look, is that I mean, something that you think should be again, addressed? Again, first of all, it's, it's the desire to use this. The cost sometimes is often a secondary mm -hmm. issue. We have used the budget to try to push the price of cigarettes up over the years, which has helped with the campaign, but not the single, not the single reason people have reduced their smoking habits. It's other, generally around health information and campaigns to, to achieve that. And that's what we have to focus. I'm aware the HRB have done a lot of research in this area too, and, are, and have a lot of data that we can use. And again, like any policies we make, they have to be evidence-based. There's a lot of research and data there, and we have to get that right. But are you being heavily lobbied by this industry, no, I as Mark been. Paul says? No, I, I genuinely have not. But because I'm, I'm chair of the Retail Forum, I would have had correspondence recently enough to meet the sector. Uh, so that's probably your, the start. Your, your senior minister has been lobbied. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I mean well, there, 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 are, there are filings in the lobbying no, register no, 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 about contact that they made with Leo Bracker, who's the senior minister. Okay, I'm just department. saying, as the retail forum chair, I've been asked to meet, and I've literally in the last few days, so I'm happy oh. to. We'll be in that. Of course, I will. I listen to all the stakeholders there, Kieran, and I will do that. Well, professor, we're behind the curve on this. 
as you said, we were pioneers in smoke-free. We're not now. We're last almost in Europe. There is no real need. I know Catherine said we should get it right, and we should. But we know what we need to do. It wasn't done. It wasn't a priority. The research we're doing is not enough. The industry research is enormous. They're surveilling. They know what the children are doing. They're messaging them through social media. They're getting them to TikTok. They're getting them to their friends. We haven't got the money to even contest it with them. And unless we take it seriously, they will win. And they usually do. They have the resource. They put it in and they win. We're not doing it. We're not, there isn't a penny being allocated by government. Government have been slow on this. And you're, it's amazing with the Taoiseach that we have and the pioneer he was. But we needed this to be done. There was no need to wait. It was not made a priority. It, there's some prioritisation of it now. But we are behind the curve and we've missed a golden opportunity, and we still need to resource it. And the legislation that is coming, does that go far enough, do you think? It certainly doesn't. 18 years, I mean, no, as I think everyone has said, no legislation is going to get it all done. But why 18 years of age? Why not 21? Why not 25? There is no need for anybody to start vaping. It is not good for them, it's not good for society, it's costing them money, and it's leading to addiction. And the environmental costs are huge. In this day and age, when we worry about the climate, we worry about pollution, why are we allowing this to happen? Damien, we'll actually respond to that. We've yeah. missed the curve. We're way behind. The lobby group are going to win. The industry is much more powerful than even Professor Clancy much. here makes a very, very strong <laughs> argument. And the government is allowing that to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I disagree to the start. This can't happen quick enough. So that's it's a priority that legislation is published, and it's in draft stage at the moment. It's gone through a lot of the, the, the stages through pre-led scrutiny, and it, it will be published before Christmas, and we can get it dealt with with the, with the support of all the parties across the house and independents. This can be put through quite quickly. It's important we do that. What about the it's what about the age limits? Yeah, to be honest, with you, I, I'm not sponsoring the department for this, so I haven't seen the, the full draft of the bill yet. But we'll look at that. And of would course, you encourage the I'd, idea of maybe increasing well, it? I, 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 there's I, I, there's I, I, no I, reason for it to be over 18. I've, no. I have a total open mind. It has to be evidence based. So of course that's what we look at. At the moment, I understand the draft bill did t talk about the age of 18. But we can. There's time to still look at all this, and that's what that's what will be done. There's no right. doubt there is in the environmental considerations are, are a, a serious consideration. I'm not sure they're going to be included in this piece. Of no, but I believe Ashin Smith, the minister, yeah. is, is looking at that as well. Yeah. All right, we're going to have to leave it there for the moment. My thanks uh, to Professor Clancy for coming in to us, Catherine and Mark uh, for being our guests this evening. Uh, Damien English is going to be staying with me, and after the break, Ireland's first foray into space. Very welcome back. And we have liftoff Ireland's, I've wanted to say that my whole life, Ireland's very first satellite, AirSat 1, has reached a huge milestone this week with the signing of an agreement with the European Space Agency allowing for its launch next year. Here tonight to explain how this came about and what it means for us is Director of the UCD Centre for Space Research, Professor Lorraine Hanlon, and Minister Damien English is still with us. Well, first of all, I feel like I need to say congratulations to you, Professor, because I know this has been a long journey. This has been five years in the making. So how significant is this? Hugely significant for us um, as a country. We've never had our own satellite. We've collaborated on lots of other people's uh, satellite projects. And for us to go forward and actually be acknowledged as an Irish satellite 
required this legal framework and legal agreement which was signed yesterday in government buildings. So at the moment we're in the middle of a process called flight acceptance with the European Space Agency and one of the boxes we have to tick is having this legal framework in place. So it would have been end of mission if we did not have the legal agreement. So all big excitement all round when that actually happened. What is this? We're looking I think at footage uh, of the satellite there is actually quite small, isn't it? Yeah. What, yep. what does it do? What will it record? What data will it send back? This is part of a new breed of satellites that are called nanosatellites that weigh less than 10 kilos and have this cubic kind of shape. We have two cubes stacked on top of each other. It's about a little bit bigger than a litre of carton of milk. And the beauty of these CubeSats is that they're small, but they're incredibly powerful because all of the components are miniaturized. And so our satellite, in fact, has three experiments on board that we've developed in UCD. One is for astrophysics, monitoring gamma ray bursts in the sky. One is material science that was developed by an Irish company. We're going to test the performance in low Earth orbit of that. And the other is a software payload for pointing the spacecraft that colleagues in mechanical engineering have developed. So okay, even though so it's I'm going to small... ask a really maybe obvious question, but why do we need that information? Lots of reasons. So, for example, the material science experiment, uh, we need to understand better how materials perform in space if we want to manufacture components on the moon, if we want to com manufacture components in orbit to get to Mars. We're not going to be able to bring everything with us we need. We have to understand how materials will behave in the really harsh environment of space. So, so testing in orbit is a brilliant way to test in orbit, right? Is, is a material going to survive in space? Well, try it. CubeSats allow us to try out these things much more cheaply than we ever could before. Um, for astrophysics, that's our research, that's our passion and our, our academic hat. You know, what are these giant explosions in space? What are, you know, what's causing the most energetic events in the cosmos? And that's what inspires our young people working on these challenging questions and challenging projects like AirSat is really about inspiring the next generation and, and building capacity in a new area that we haven't done in the country before. Uh, Damien English, is Ireland ripe for a space boom? Uh, it certainly is, and it's something that we've been working on for the last number of years. There's over 100 companies now uh, in, involved in contracts with the European Space Agency, so involved in the space programme in different ways. Uh, and I think what, what, what EARSAT won, what's, what's important for us as a government and for a country are two things. The education and research part of this, uh, is really encouraging and it's going to encourage more and more people to take up the STEM subjects, you know, science and technology and maths and engineering, because that's all involved in making this happen out at UCD. The team there have, have involved a number of Irish companies in this project as well. So it sends a very strong message out of the opportunity for Ireland's education system, research system, and to create jobs into the future with new companies. Who because there is contracts. a whole, isn't there, uh, global there's, space market out there's there? There's a massive market in space. And Ireland's only a very small part, but we're not in the, in the business of, of putting up rockets. But it's the, it's the technologies that are involved in the space programmes. And those, those technologies are essential in data collection and communications, and they have a role in many other parts of our lives. But very often, technology is used in space first 
that that's what they get used for and developed because that's what the big money is. And they, they reckon the market and that and it's going to go to about is a trillion dollars in the years ahead in the space spend. So Ireland's there's potential here. There's potential for us to be part of that. And we we believe through our own department, our enterprise trade and employment, the Tosh is very much involved in this yesterday with Lorraine and the team as well in UCD, that there's an opportunity here for more and more Irish companies to grow their involvement. But for that to happen, it has to be that blend, they're working together with our education and our, and our research scheme. And that's what we're trying to do here with, with Lorraine and all the team in UCD, which is brilliant. It's a great opportunity for Ireland. Okay, what are the, that's the economic benefits. What are the societal benefits of these satellites and sort of practical, you know, everyday life, Lorraine? Fundamental. Everything uh, we do, every time we look at our sat-nav in our car, we're using GPS signals, we're using um, Earth observation data. So our satellite is basically looking out at the cosmos, but many satellites now are looking at Earth, you know, looking at drought, monitoring water bodies across Europe, all those awful images this summer of riverbeds drying up, all of that was coming from satellites. You know, understanding what's happening on the ground in conflicted areas of the world, how many aircraft are coming in and out mm. uh, of, of uh, airports and secure facilities. Um, all of that's coming from satellite data. So, so much of our life is weather. telecoms, mm. weather, we, meteorology. We Weather forecasting is Absolutely. surely it's number essential. one priority in this country. <laughs> and obviously TV and satellite TV. Mm. So all our satellites are enabling a lot of modern society and also helping us address the global challenges we face in society. So it's really important for us to be literate as a society and as a country in what space can do for us. Uh, tell me about the poem that is engraved on the side of that satellite that's heading up there. We, want, we couldn't launch an Irish satellite and not have a poem. And we thought it would be wonderful to really broaden out, not just to have the space folks interested, but young people who are writers, who are creative and don't feel that space is for them. So young children, 15-year-olds uh, across the country, worked with UCD writers oh, right. and made a poem called Always Home. And it's wonderful. etched on the spacecraft. Thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us this evening. Uh, my thanks to all of my guests. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, BMTV. But we have to leave it there for now. So from all the late team here, good night. Take care.